So today, uh, what we're doing uh, today is we're continuing with our Advent sermon series. What we're very specifically doing this Advent is looking at various character profiles uh, in the gospel accounts of Luke, and today we're looking at Matthew. But in these character profiles, we're asking the question, who did Jesus come for? And we looked at Zechariah. We looked at Mary, we looked at the shepherds, and today we're looking at the Magi. And very specifically, as we are looking at this question, the, the answer to this question that we're looking at today is that Jesus comes for the lost and the forgotten. That's what we see in today's text. And so today we'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll be jumping to verses 16 through 18. And I need to uh, make a, an apology because your worship guides do not have the last four verses, the last three verses that we're looking at of Mark, Matthew 2, 16 through 18, but this, they are on the slides behind me. So with that said, let's uh, give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Um, this is Matthew 2, verses 1 uh, through, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least of the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went, from, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they re rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they returned they departed to their own country by another way. Skipping down to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And, it, and in all that region, who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that as we uh, look, look at your word now, may your spirit show us your love for us, your goodness, your grace, and the truth of your word for our lives today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. There's this 2005 movie called Children of Man. And Children of Men. And it's a dystopian movie. It takes place within this fictional universe set in the year 2027. 
And it's a dystopian movie because for two, for two decades, for 20 years, women all across the globe were unable to have children. In this movie, in this, in this imagined universe, the youngest child alive is 18 years old. And quite literally, there's no hope for mankind because there's no future for mankind. This entire movie is imagining the end of the human race within the next 50 years. And so when you have no children, when you have no future generations to care for, then it's unreasonable to struggle and suffer for a just and more compassionate society. That's at least the point that the movie is trying to make. Because when there's no future, who's going to care about justice? Who cares about compassion or good versus evil? But in this movie that is a dystopian, uh, this very pessimistic movie, it's actually a movie that has a lot of hope because one woman gets pregnant. All the hopes and dreams for the future for this new humanity, along with the competing agendas of every person in, this, in that imagined universe, are put on this woman with her child. And while it is a fictional story, this child's birth is significant and is intentionally uh, paralleling the, the biblical story. I say that because, it was, and this was intentional, it was released on Christmas Day in 2006. The writers want us to actually see this movie as a parallel story to what we are looking at today. And so I want to ask the question right now, have you ever asked yourself how Jesus' birth is significant? Have you ever asked yourself how Jesus' birth is significant? Because today we're looking at this passage where we see wise men coming from eastern Iran to pay homage to Jesus. And this ultimately results in the mass murder of baby boys who are two years or younger in, in Bethlehem and in the, the immediate area by King Herod. So Jesus' birth is so significant that there are two responses. There's actually three responses here, but I'm really focusing on these two extreme responses here. We have that Jesus' birth is so significant that you come to worship him, or Jesus' birth is so significant that you want to kill him. That's what this story is telling us today, and that's what I want us to dive into. So let's first uh, just think about this, 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 this story and uh, help us understand the significance of Jesus' birth. So uh, like, let me first uh, just deconstruct this story for you. Because uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about the story, about the, the Magi. And there's a lot of confusion because many Christmas carols get the facts wrong. You'll notice nowhere does Matthew say how many Magi came to visit Jesus, where they came from, or what social class they belonged to. So the Christmas carol... We three kings of Orient are is completely wrong. Because right here, we don't know how many Magi came. We don't know where they came from or anything else. Later on, if you look at, um, when we looked at verses 16 through 18, Herod kills all the boys under the age of two. So contrary to the nativity sets that, just, that we have in our house, these Magi did not come to visit Jesus when he is in the manger. Jesus is not a newborn baby, but a toddler. And so at this point, let's just ask the question, who are the Magi? If everything we think about the Magi is wrong, then who are the Magi? Well, Magi is the Greek word for astrologers, magicians, interpreters of dreams. And they came to Bethlehem because they were following the star. We see that in verse 2. 
And, and but very specifically, they are astrologers. And astrology, astrology was a big business within the ancient world where people, men, will look at the stars and as they're looking at the stars, they're interpreting these, these events in the heavens and they're, they're basically determining the, the significance for human history. And for example, here's, and this is one, one thing that really helped the astrology um, big bu the business in the ancient world. For example, when Julius Caesar was buried, by some coincidence, there was a supernova over his grave. There was this magnificent display of creation. And so people thought and, and concluded in similar, very similarly that when a great leader w was born, there would be a great sign in the stars. When a great leader died, there would be a great sign in the stars. And scholars cannot agree on exactly what the star was. There's a creek right below my foot. It's annoying me. It's probably annoying you worse. It was annoying you, wasn't it? I think I'm good. So let's think about the star. Okay, Magi being astrologers, let's think about the star. Scholars cannot agree on what the star is. Some say that it looked like, at least from the Earth, that Jupiter's and Saturn's orbits came together and made it look like a very great star. Others, like Cambridge professor Colin Nichol, argues that it was actually a comet in his great book, The Great Christ Comet. In other words, scholars don't agree, but there's a lot of data that says that a, great, a lot of things were going on in the stars at the time. And so whenever, coming back to this, whenever, coming back to the Magi, whenever the scripture talks about the Magi, and it's in a very general sense, it speaks about the, this profession of astrology in the negative sense. It's, so this passage is not an endorsement for astrology or magic. Instead, there's something more incredible going on. That, and here, this is it, that the truth is known even among spiritual blindness and darkness and false teaching. The truth is that a great king has been born, and even those who are spiritually blind see that. And these men, if they are from Babylon, some say India, some say elsewhere, but these men traveled 550 miles to meet this new king. And so right here, we learn something about God. These are pagans who are serving a pagan king, yet they are coming to worship Jesus. That's simply, I just want to point out that Christianity is not a religion for good people. It is a religion for sinners who listen to God. That's what we learned about God here in the, the Christian faith. And so this is really helping us like set the scene for what is about to happen. Verse 3, when King Herod hears all of this, he is troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. So King Herod is now the person we want to focus on. He is not a good king. Actually, he was like a great civic leader. He did a lot of um, building projects in, in Judea, but he was not a good king. He was not a good moral king. For example, he was good friends with uh, Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor. And Caesar supposedly said this about Herod. It is better to be Herod's pig instead of his son. Because Herod was known for killing any rival to his throne. In fact, he killed his wife and three of his own sons. And so as we look at this passage where Herod kills all these baby boys under the age of two, it's very consistent with what we know about him from history. And so as we come to Herod, here's where we're getting into some incredible irony. 
because Herod knows exactly whom these magi were talking about. He actually consults the religious authorities, the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he asks them, and this is his words that he asks them, where is the Christ to be born? So here's the, the, the delicious irony that Matthew gives us. On one hand, we have these Gentile, foreigner, lost astrologers who are coming to pay respect to Jesus without knowing that he is the Messiah. They're, they are genuine strangers to the covenant promise. But then, on the other hand, there's Herod, who knows the Hebrew Scriptures, and he puts two and two together, and at the very least on that, he knows who to ask. At the very least, he knows who, who to ask. But, and he knows that the, these magi are coming to worship the Messiah, and so here's Herod who plans to kill him. But here's the irony. Neither do the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the chief priests, join the magi in worshiping Jesus. When you read the, the, the Gospels over and over again, religious people are, are pretty much always the last to receive Jesus because the religious people are looking at their own lives and they see no need for repentance. They feel entitled because they have the word of God. They think that God's promises are theirs. They are uh, just very entitled and privileged people. And so the point is that you can know the word of God accurately, but if it actually does not cause you to come to Jesus and worship him, you don't know the word of God. You don't know the word of God. And so what this means, just to really think about our own lives, that if you grew up in, your, in the church and you consider yourself a religious person, this is a profound warning to you. You can never think that your, your family, your church, your religiosity, or anything else means that you're going to respond to the gospel. This passage is a warning because most likely you'll be complacent. You'll be apathetic, and that's a warning to you. And so, they, like, so the warning to hear is that if like, we are seeing some people look at Jesus' birth and they don't see any significance in it whatsoever, that's a warning to us. But nonetheless, there's two other extreme responses here. Someone to worship Jesus and someone to kill him. So let's think about Herod a bit more. Why would you want to kill Jesus? Because King Herod takes the news of Jesus' birth as a threat. The Magi ask him, where is the king of the Jews? So King Herod is seeing Jesus as a rival, as a threat, because Jesus is significant. The birth of children is significant. Ask any parent, this is the truth. So here's just a personal illustration. When you have a new addition to your family, that child changes everything. Once you got sleep, but when you have a newborn baby, nope, you're getting woken up every two hours. You're going to comfort them, you're going to soothe them, or, or nurse them, give them back to sleep, and, and help that baby gain weight. As a child gets older, you go to their Christmas programs and sporting events to support and cheer them on, even if that child's just going to stand there, not saying a word, but having a frown on their face. Children are very significant, and they cause, a, we see their significance in how they change family lives. But Jesus' birth is significant in a much more cosmic, grander way. Because Jesus' birth reframes every person's life for all eternity. Jesus is not just significant to 
his mom and his family because he's their son. He's not just significant and a threat to Herod because he's the king of the Jews. He is a real threat to every single one of us. While most of us would not kill Jesus, skeptics instead scoff at God. Religious people are indifferent where we simply dismiss God in some ways. But the truth is we are all sinners who rebel against God and his ways. And Jesus evokes, he causes extreme reactions. If you look at the gospel accounts later on, you'll see that some wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. Others were so terrified of him. After they see and witness an incredible healing moment where Jesus casts out so many demons out of this man, they say, depart and get away from us. Others fall down to worship him. So the point is, I'm making is that some wanted to kill Jesus, some wanted to dismiss Jesus and, and remove him from their presence, and some just worshiped him. Why these extremes? It's because of who he is that makes Jesus significant for us for all eternity. Jesus says that he is God. Jesus calls himself, I, he says, I'm the light of the world. I am the savior, savior of humanity. And very culturally, culturally speaking, one thing that we see during Christmas is that everyone likes Jesus regardless of their own personal faith. For example... Yesterday, Liam, my oldest son, uh, was introduced to uh, Sesame Street Christmas. And as the, oh, the Happy Holidays, it's the Happy Holidays version. And even Sesame Street is saying that Jesus is a very special baby boy. So the point that I'm just simply, simply making, everyone wants to say that Jesus is a, is a special and significant person and that regardless of their own personal faith. But is that how it should be? Is that okay? Because Jesus says that he is God, so either he's delusional or crazy, and so he should be institutionalized, and, where, and we think he should have mental health issues, or either he is lying and trying to deceive you, and so therefore he's not loving, but he's actually a, a very manipulative, deceitful person. And, or, this is in C.S. Lewis's entire argument in Mere Christianity, or if he's not a lunatic, if he's not a liar, he must be your, your Lord. He is telling the truth, and he deserves your worship. And so in one way or another, we in, in all in this room and every single person knows that Jesus is a threat to our agendas, to our world, and our own way of living because Jesus' kingdom challenges our own kingdom of self. And so Jesus challenged people in his own day and today with his own teaching, with his moral teaching. When we think we are championing biblical morality, he challenges the civil religion of our day by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he challenges the promiscuous by saying that you cannot just sleep with whoever you want. And he challenges us by saying that it, our imagination and our fantasies matter. You cannot just lust after anyone whom you want to. And even here, none of us wants to say, hey, we're murderers. But Jesus challenges our own self-righteous attitude by saying that if we call others' names. If we say in our heart, Raka, you fool, then you have just murdered them in our hearts. Jesus challenges every part of our life, our behavior, our thoughts, our emotions, our sexuality. He challenges everything about us. Just consider a few questions for your own life. Before you make a decision, do you think, hey, what's in this for me? Is this going to help me get ahead? Am I going to have a bigger paycheck? Or am I going to have uh, better relationships because of this decision? Or are you thinking about how your, this decision is going to impact other people around you? 
and you're weighing those things. In other words, are you focused on yourself? Here, another question. Are you more concerned about the sin and the morality in another person's life as opposed to looking at, at your own life and thinking about your own sin and your own brokenness in your own life? Are you always looking for the next thing? Are you always discontent, looking for the next thing instead of being focused on growing in satisfaction and contentment right now in this moment with God? Or do you, do you close yourself off from relationships or are you diving into community where you're admitting the fact that you need to be honest and known? Well, like we can just keep going on and on and on but with the similar questions, but are we living for ourselves or are we living for God? If we're living for ourselves, the point is, when you live for yourself, you're trying to keep Jesus out of your life. But the incredible message of Christmas is that despite our best efforts, be, the, despite everything that we try to do to keep God out of our life, the message of Christmas is that God comes into our life. God intrudes. Just think about the entire Christmas story for, in a brief moment where we have a virgin and God sends his Messiah, our Savior, to, to us through a virgin. That's how God comes to us. So despite our best efforts to keep God out, God, Jesus intrudes into our life, and Jesus threatens the, our agenda of our kingdom of self in order for us to actually have life and to have it abundantly. Presbyterian writer, Frederick Buechner, this is the quote of reflection in our bulletin today. He said this, Once you have seen him in a stable, you can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of you. If holiness and the awful power and majesty were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place that we can hide from God. No place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is strong and, where, and just where we least expect him that he comes to us most fully. It's Frederick Buechner. It's beautiful language. I love this again, that there's, like once you see Jesus in the, in the stable, you can never be sure to what, wh where he will appear or to what lengths he will go to or what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wildest pursuit of you. That's incredible. The point is that if the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we have truly lost the right to be in charge of our lives. And in order for us to do that, we need to come to Jesus and worship him. And so let's think about the Magi a bit further and how they respond to Jesus. Because these magi, they come to Jesus, they give three things to this little baby. And this is where we get the idea that three magi are coming to Jesus. And even by these gifts, which are expenses, expensive, this is why we tend to think that these magi are kings. At the very least, as we read in Isaiah 60, verse 3, Scripture tells us that kings are going to come to worship Jesus. And so... Um, just by both of those things, expensive gifts and what Scripture, Old Testament prophecy says. It's like, hey, they're, they must be kings. But as these magi give these three things to this little baby, each is expensive, each is beautiful. You have gold, for example, the medal of kings. Frankincense is this glittering, uh, fragrant gum that's taken from the bark of rare trees. 
And myrrh is another spice and perfume. And today, this blows my mind. Today, a jar of myrrh could cost you $10,000. It's amazing. My point is that these magi gave something precious to Jesus. The magi are giving something to Jesus that cost them something. And there's a big difference between you and the magi. Because you know who Jesus really is. When they came to meet Jesus, they were not coming to worship God, the Son, but they were coming to meet a newborn king. We know that this baby boy is incredibly unique and significant. And consider just these words that we sang earlier. Christ, by, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as men. With men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. That incredible carol right there is telling us that Jesus is no one else than God in the flesh. That Jesus Christ is the creator who has humiliated himself and become the creation. He is the incarnate deity, veiled in flesh that God had seen. That is who Jesus Christ is. So what do you give to God who humiliated himself so that you would have life? What do you give to the God who loves you so much that he became like you so that you would have an advocate who knows everything that you have ever gone through? What do you give to Emmanuel, God with us? One of the things that families and friends do this time of year is that we love to give gifts to one another. Gift giving, where we get this from the Scriptures is from the Magi giving gifts to Jesus. It's something that was very well established in, in the Christian tradition. Um, even St. Nick, um, a bishop in the early 300s, he was known for his charity and gave gifts to the poor children around him. But so one thing that friends and families do is just give gifts to one another. But when we give gifts to one another, we're making a statement about the other person, about who they are to us, what we think they like, what we think they need. But here's this reality, is that we like being givers. We like being givers much better than we really like being receivers. And bringing this in a, in, to us in a spiritual sense, here's another author. This is a long quote. William Willimon, he points out that we like being givers. He says that we prefer to think of ourselves as givers because givers are powerful competent, self-sufficient, and capable people whose goodness motivates us to employ some of our power, competence, and gifts to fortune those less fortunate than us. But that's a direct contradiction of the message of Christmas. In the biblical story, there we are portrayed not as the givers we wish we were, but as the, res the receivers that we are. Luke's and Matthew's gospel accounts go to great lengths to demonstrate that we are with no power, with no generosity, with no competence and no capabilities. We have nothing to do with our salvation, with God's work in Jesus. God wanted to do something for us so strange, so utterly beyond the bounds of human imagination, so foreign to human projection that God resorted to angels, pregnant virgins, and stars in the sky to get it down. We did not think of it, understand it, or approve it, of it. All we can do, though, is receive it. A gift from a God who loves us. His simple point is that we cannot give anything to God 
There's no religious performance, no gift that we can give, no worship that we can give that results in God's love for you. The point is that we do not have life with God because of our religiosity, with our knowledge, with our good morals or anything. We are a Christian simply because we are loved by God. And this lavish love only deserves one proper response, and it's worship, where you give your very life to worship him. And that is going to cost you everything, and that's because God gave everything so that he can have life with you. And then the life that, and the, what he gave for himself is that he gave his only begotten son who came to this world born as a baby in a manger. He lived his entire life, and he humi- the creator was humil- humiliated. And as he died upon the cross, he was the, the recipient of great injustice, but he was also the recipient of a greater injustice where he bore God's judgment that was deserved for you. But he bore that gladly and lovingly because he loves and cares for you. And he was raised from the dead. Once again, in other words, friends, God gave everything so that he can have life with you. How are you going to respond to that incredible act and gift of love that you so desperately need? How are you going to respond? Friends, the truth is Jesus' birth is significant. So I plead with you to come to Jesus today and worship him and to worship him and to love him with your life. In Christ's name, let's pray.